We're going to be in 1 Kings 22 and then 2 Kings 1 this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we know that uh, your word is something that is powerful and um, that you put things in the Bible for us to learn from. And so I pray that you'd help us to understand today. Help us to see what it is that you're saying and to understand it. And then even more than that, Lord, to seek to live it out. So we ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Ahab and Jezebel led the whole nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, into Baal worship. <clears throat> they they built a temple for Baal, which they didn't have before in Samaria. And uh, they put an Asher pole there. Jezebel made sure that she took care of all of the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. Um, and they led the nation into the immorality involved with the worship of Baal and Asherah, as well as the human sacrifices involved in that as well. And so when we think of what they had done and what they brought into the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel, we are not surprised when we see God judging. And that's one of the things that Elijah brings to brings it into focus. That's why there was the drought for three and a half years to just wake up the whole country. Listen, folks, uh, you can't live here without water and until God says so, you're not going to have any. And so all kinds of things happened as a result of, of Elijah praying that there would be no rain. And of course there's the confrontation on, on Mount Carmel and, and, um, you know, Baal shows that he's totally powerless. And then God has the power to bring fire down from heaven, consume the altar, consume the, the bull, everything that was there. And the people at that point said for the first time, the Lord, He is God. Which was the whole point of what Elijah was trying to do. He was trying to bring them away from Baal worship, back to the worship of the Lord, and the Lord only. And so, he's he's been working at this all along, and, and pushing in those directions um, he wanted them to understand completely that when we talked about Jehovah, we talked about Yahweh, He was the Lord and there was nobody else. He was God and there's nobody else besides Him. Uh, many people of the day tried to think, well, we can do both Baal and God. And, and the point of all of this was, no, you can't. You want to worship Baal, that's fine, but... You know, you're under God's judgment if you do that. And that's what happens to, to Ahab and his whole family. So the, the whole point of the ministry of Elijah and the prophets that you hear in this point is to point Israel back to there is one God and only one God, and that is Yahweh, the God of Israel. So we're going to pick up in, in chapter 22 and just kind of go through this briefly together. We already talked about this when we studied Jehoshaphat much earlier in the year, but we're going to go back and hit it again in a little different way. Um, <clears throat> you've got uh, verse um, 2. We'll start there in verse 2 of chapter 22. In the third year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, um, they went down to Israel to meet um, and spend time there. And one of the things that we learn is that um, Jehoshaphat had married his son to a daughter of Ahab. And... Um, that's one of the things where you begin to see, okay, so there's kind of a connection, there's a peace between the two 
countries, and, and, and that was sealed by that marriage. Let's go ahead and put that map up there, Tim, if you would, please. Now, just kind of to sh- just briefly show you that what the different people will hit today. Uh, of course, Judah down below in the red and Jerusalem, that's the southern kingdom. That's where Jehoshaphat is king up north of that. In that yellow circle, that's Samaria. And that's Israel, the northern kingdom. Up to the right, further from that, you've got Aram. And that's who we've been seeing fight with Israel over and over and over. And, and God kept giving Ahab victory, saying, I will deal with these people so that you will know that I'm the Lord and there is no other. And he did that several times. And Ahab still didn't get it. So <clears throat> where the green arrow is, that's that's the town that they're going to want to go fight over. And then we'll deal with some of the other things that are there as well later. Verse 3, um, the king of Israel said to his officials, uh, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead, that's where that green arrow was, belongs to us and we <clears throat> and we have done nothing to take it back. So verse 4, he says to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, I'm with you, kind of thing. The people, My people are your people, my horses your horses. And so he's already said, yes, we're going. I'll, I'll go with you. And then all of a sudden he says, but first let's seek the counsel of the Lord. So already you see that something's a little strange here. You've got this alliance between Israel and Judah and Jehoshaphat, who's been a, a good king, uh, not not as good as David, but good and, and has done good things for the kingdom and brought God's word into the focus again. And yet here he is with Ahab and he's got this strange compulsion almost. And yeah, yeah, well, sure, yeah. My army's your army. Oh, yeah, let's ask God. And it's almost like an afterthought that he says that. So verse 6, King Ahab brought in some prophets. He brought in 400 of them again. I don't know it's something mystical about that number. Um, they're always 400 or 450. He brings these 400 prophets in, and he says, Hey, you know, should we go to war against Aram? And of course they're going, Oh, yeah, yeah, the Lord's going to give you victory. The Lord's going to give you victory. And they're using the term Lord, but that isn't who they mean. They're not saying, Oh, yeah, we're prophets of the God of Israel. They're prophets of Baal. And so um, Jehoshaphat asks a question in verse 7. He watches these 400 guys doing all their things and saying, yeah, you're going to win, no problem. And he said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire? So Jehoshaphat sees right through the 400 prophets and said, these guys, yeah, they may be using the name Lord, but they're not prophets of the Lord. Is there, is there anybody? And the king answered, well, yeah, there's still one man, his name's Micaiah, but I hate him because he always prophesies bad stuff about me. Go figure, he's a bad king, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, I love that part. He's really kind of honest there. And um, he says, fine, go get Micaiah, and we'll, we'll go from there. So again, just stop and think of what's happening here. Um, Jehoshaphat, who is a good king and has sought to honor God and follow him, it has an alliance with King Ahab, who really wants to make um, the northern kingdom a territory that is totally controlled by Baal. Um, his wife Jezebel tried to kill all the prophets. And so you've got two totally different uh, religions, Baal worship and, and the worship of the true God. And, and somehow Jehoshaphat, probably because of being related through marriage in some way, is trying to make this all work. And, and, and I love the fact that he sits there, watches the 400 prophets and says, isn't there one? 
somewhere that really prophesies the truth? So they sent a messenger. The messenger is told as he brings, he brings um, Micaiah with him. He's telling Micaiah, listen, everybody else already said yes to this, so you should just kind of get along with this. And his response was, hey, I'm going to do what the Lord tells me to do. That's what I'll say. Verse 15, we'll pick it up there. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead? Or shall I refrain? Now, if you've ever wondered about the appropriate place to use sarcasm, it's right here. Um, And he says, attack and be victorious, he answered. The Lord will give it into the king's hands. I mean, what better way to put it than to, you know, be very over-the-top, almost sarcastic, saying, well, yeah, absolutely, you should do this. And then the response of the king, just fascinating, The king said to him, and this is Ahab, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he knows knows that this is an an exaggeration. He knows that that he has been saying something that he doesn't believe. And, and, And you sit there and you wonder, what is Jehoshaphat thinking? You know, why is he still sitting there? I mean, he saw the 400 prophets. They bring the true prophet of God. The true prophet of God goes along with them. And, and even King Ahab says, well, wait a minute here. That's not what you, that's not what you would normally say. Tell us the truth. Anyway, he does tell him the truth. He goes on to say, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go to his home. And in that time period, many times the king was portrayed as the shepherd. So what he's saying here, and it's not very well hidden, he's not trying to hide it. He's saying, I see the nation of Israel and the shepherd is gone. And the sheep are scattered and they're returning to their own homes. This is the king being killed, this is being prophesied, and everyone retreating to their own homes. That's exactly what... Micaiah is prophesying at this point. And he goes on. They have the, the little thing with the, you know, the saying, um, Micaiah explains how in heaven God was saying, how are we going to, how are we going to get, uh, Ahab to do this because, uh, he needs to go to war and you got the putting a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. And at one point then at the end, Micaiah says, The Lord has decreed disaster for you. That's to Ahab said directly. In other words, he's saying, you're going to die. You are going to die. That is what God has prophesied will happen. Um, and so on one level, the decree has been issued. This is a death sentence and it just needs to be executed. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, <clears throat> As they get ready to go over to war anyway. Oh, let me back up a little bit. I want to grab this. I forgot to grab it. Um, the king at that point says, hey, if this, take this guy, put him in chains, put him in the dungeon, feed him with bread and water until I return. And I love what Micaiah says in verse 28. If you ever return, the Lord has not spoken through me. Pretty blatant, pretty right up front. In other words, he's saying, hey, you're not coming back, and the Lord has spoken through me. Uh, the test of a true prophet was whether or not what he said happened exactly the way it was prophesied. 
So anyway, they're getting ready to go out to battle. The armies are all together. <clears throat> and again, there's all these points where Jehoshaphat had a chance to say, this is not a good idea. Let's go home. This one would have been for me. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself, went out looking like a common soldier. And, of course, Jehoshaphat goes with the royal robes and everything that went with that. Now, in that time frame, many times kings did wear their royal robes because they were a rallying point for the troops. If, you know, there was some kind of a signal that they needed to gather back together, you would look for the king, uh, and, and him being in all of his uh, royal dress would make that easier. Um, interesting thing, the king of Am- Aram told all of his chariot officers, I don't want you to fight anybody else, nobody. You find Ahab and you fight him. So he was 32 chariots are sent out looking for Ahab, who has disguised himself. Uh, so Jehoshaphat's out there looking like a king, and he gets surrounded by the charioteers. And at some point, he, he cries out loud, and he's praying to God, and they realize this is an Ahab, and then they all leave him alone. So they just go away. Verse 34. This is where the sovereignty of God comes clearly to bear. Someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. So, you know, many times they would have a bunch of archers who would be shooting arrows up in the air and they would land into the other army. Well, one of these arrows that was shot hit Ahab right in the joint in the armor and it was a really bad wound. And he says, get me out of the battle. So they take him out of the battle and they turn him around so he can see what's going on. They prop him up and he's sitting there literally bleeding out the rest of the day until he finally does die. Um, As the sun was setting, verse 36, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, everyone to his land. What was the prophecy we'd heard? They're going to, shepherd will be gone and the sheep will go and scatter. And then they washed the chariot and pool of Samaria. Dogs came and licked up the blood that was being washed out. Sometimes people think they can, they're smarter than God. I think Ahab might have thought that. You know, I'll disguise myself and I'll be safe from this prophecy. Yeah, no. Didn't work out that way. A random arrow guarded by God, guided by God, um, took care of the whole thing. What are some implications here for us? Um, Elijah met Ahab in the vineyard. This is way back, going back to the prophecy of all that was going to come. And and um, he had taken Naboth's vineyard by doing a whole bunch of legal trickery and uh, lying about Naboth. And Naboth was killed at, at Jezebel's command. And Elijah's out there talking to Ahab. This is what the Lord says in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up yours too. That's 1 Kings 21.19. And um, three years have gone by since that prophecy. And Elijah's proved to be a prophet of God because that's exactly what happens. Um, Let's go to this next quote. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria 
and the dogs licked up his blood. God always has the last word. You can deny God's word, reject God's word, attempt to outsmart God's word, but you can never escape it. Ahab's death was not an accident. It was divine justice. It had been decreed, and it had been prophesied. All of that, this is what God's going to do. And so when Elijah confronted Ahab and he pronounced these things, and there's a whole bunch of other prophecies as well, this is the very first one of the prophecies that's being fulfilled, and it's fulfilled exactly. I'm just going to put the prophecies up there. So the first one was that uh, he would be killed, and dogs would lick up his blood, and, and there's a question as to whether or not it's the same place or in the same way. So the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, and they were going to lick up Ahab's blood. Second one, all his male descendants will be cut off. There will be no legacy, no family, no name, nothing. Totally cut off. We'll deal with that in just a second. The third one, and again, please forgive me, I, this is gruesome stuff, but I, this is what it says. Dogs will devour Je- Jezebel by the wall in Jezreel. In other words, she would not be buried. It was a shameful thing not to be buried, but it was even worse to be eaten up in the way she was. And then none of his descendants would be buried. They would be eaten by dogs if they were in the city or vultures if they were in the countryside. Now, the very first one of those prophecies has come true. And then um, Ahaziah is Ahab's oldest son, and he takes power, and and he's in power for two years. Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Tim. I didn't make that very clear. Uh, He's in power for two years. And um, he's killed, and we'll deal with that whole sequence of how that happens in a minute. And then Joram, his brother, takes the throne. And so after, after two years after Ahab's death, his oldest son dies. Twelve years later, Joram, the second son, begins to reign, and he actually reigns for, four, or for 12 years. Um, Fourteen years then later, after uh, Ahab had died, Joram is killed, Right almost the same day, Jezebel is killed. And then there's a some short amount of time goes through when all of the rest of his sons, and there's a lot of them, were executed. And then any relatives, any relatives, were also killed. So we're talking about wiping out the whole family name. Everybody, there was not one person in Israel who would have been related to Ahab in any way, shape, or form. It took 14 years. But this is this is the statement. God's judgment may be delayed, but it's always certain. He had said, you are going to go through this. And he gave him opportunities. And Ahab turned away from those opportunities. Remember Ahab, we talked about this last week, Ahab had humbled himself at one point. And God mentioned it to Elijah, and he delayed judgment. But then all of a sudden, you look at this chapter, and, and you see, here he is back with the prophets of Baal, and, and really not a follower of God in any way, shape, or form. And so at that point, God causes Elijah's prophecies to kick into gear, and they all fall in place, and it all takes place. Now, he was 100% accurate in all of them. Some of them we haven't gotten to yet. And some of them actually happened after Elijah's death. But all of them came true. 
Uh, you want to go through reading Kings, uh, the New Living does a great job of making making it easy to read through and catching the the um, the sequence of what's going on. But how could he how could he do that? How could he be so accurate? Well, Numbers twenty three nineteen says this: God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? And the answer expected is no. No, he speaks and he acts. Does he promise and not fulfill? No, he promises and he fulfills. And so when God said to Elijah, this is what's going to happen, prophesy this, it was 100% accurate. It was going to happen because God had said so. And so you've got Elijah's prophecy, the gruesome things that Ahab and Jezebel did, all of that being fulfilled exactly. So this, this statement, I think, is an accurate one. When God says something, he means it. He means it. And so the judgment of Ahab, many opportunities to turn away before that happened, and, and he didn't. And so God executed the judgment. <clears throat> so, gee, I was with, um, when I visited Craig and Jody in the hospital the other day, I shared the verse uh, from Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me, there is no God. And, and we we're just talking about that and, and how, what does it mean that the only God um, sent Jesus to live and die for us? The only God did that. The one and only God said, I will never leave you and forsake you. And so Craig and I were talking about that. So you've got this God is saying, I am, the, I am the, the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God, but I am your God and I am with you because I promised that I would never leave you. I would never forsake you. The one and only God says, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. So don't fear. That's why it was so important that Elijah was trying to bring the people back to the truth. There is one God and only one, and He is the one that brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery, to this land and gave us this land. There's only one God. There is no other. And so he kept hammering that truth down. Just another implication here. First Kings 22.34 the Aramean soldier <clears throat> who shot a random arrow strikes the king. And a skeptic would say, yeah, right. You know, I mean, hey, hundreds of arrows. It could have been anybody. It could have been uh, nobody. And, and um, it's just a coincidence. Now, our answer to that is the sovereignty of God. And God, um, sure, hundreds of arrows might have been flying at that point in time, but that one was directed specifically to a, the perfect spot. Not only to hit Ahab, but to to kill him. Um, the sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that <clears throat> God possesses all power and is ruler over all things. He rules over the works according to his. He rules and works according to his purposes, his plan, and nothing contradicts what he's got planned. Ahab thought, "Well, I can get I can get away with this. God's not going to take me out. I'll hide." Well. It didn't happen. And it's interesting, as you study the sovereignty of God, uh, you see it in, in many areas, but it seems to be really focused in, in the time frame of creation, but then human history, he's overruling and ruling. And then you've got the whole idea of redemption and, and w- w- coming of Christ and all of that. And again, you see the sovereignty of God just weaving all things together perfectly. Psalm 135 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth 
in the seas and all deeps. <clears throat> now there was another king who was just as arrogant as Ahab, just as wicked as Ahab, and a prophet confronted him, and he didn't want to listen either. And so God condemned him, and Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years with no ability to think clearly, uh, basically living like an animal, grazing in the field. And um, that whole time was there for him, ordained by God, to get him to come and see what God really wanted him to see. And I'll just read Daniel 4.34. This is as he comes to his senses. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the One who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. And all the people of the earth, there is nothing compared to Him. He does as He pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop His hand, He says. No one can ask Him, Why are you doing that? At times God delays judgment so people can respond. At times He wants to make sure that His mercy and His grace is clearly seen and understood. God warned Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't believe, so He disciplined him. And then He was given another opportunity, and He did believe. Ahab was given many chances. And at one point it looked like maybe he was getting it. And then, not at all. The sovereignty of God, um, he just acted in all of the ways that he needed to to bring about what was going to happen. So I'm going to go ahead and keep going and pick up Ahaziah in chapter 22, verse 51. And again, this is, uh, you know, Ahab's son took, took over the kingship. Um, he was reigning for two years. But look at what it says in 52. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the example of his father and mother, served the Baals, worship, provoking the Lord to anger. Um, so nothing's changed. Ahab was wicked and evil, and he worshipped Baal and tried to get people to worship Baal. And Ahaziah comes along, and he does the same thing. So in chapter 1 of Second Kings, continue right on through, um, You've got verse 2, One day Israel's new king Ahaziah fell through the latticework of an upper room at his palace in Samaria and was seriously injured. Now this is interesting because if you go and you try to figure out what this really is, there's everything from he fell over a rail somewhere or he fell out a window uh, or maybe there was like a, a roof grate that he was looking down through. Let me just say this. We don't have a clue. We know that he fell. And it was serious enough that he thought he was going to die. So what does he do? Well, he decides he's going to send messengers. He sent messengers to the temple of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, um, <clears throat> to ask whether he would recover. Now, the writer of Second Kings uses the, the for, and it's very possible he was doing this on purpose, the term Baal-zebub means Lord of the Flies. The title that most of the time he had was Baal Zebul, which means Baal is exalted. But all through this section, the writer of the book of, of Second Kings is using Baal Zebub, saying, well, yeah, Baal, the Lord of the Flies. And so he's kind of insulting Baal um, as he's writing the story. <clears throat> so he sends 
to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Go ahead and put that map up there again. And um, down where the blue arrow is in Philistia, that's Ekron. Now, so, you know, they had Baal worship in, in northern Israel or in the northern kingdom. And yet when he's sick, he wants to send people on this somewhere between 50 and 60 mile journey to ask Baal, Beelzebub, or yeah, exactly what's going what's gonna to happen to him. Is he going to make it or is he not going to make it? Um, and why didn't he go to Baal in, in, in Israel? I, it's possible that uh, after the confrontation on Mount Carmel, the people were not all that excited about Baal. He didn't do well at that contest. The angel of the Lord, verse 3, tells uh, Elijah, you need to go confront these people. Uh, these people that are going down to see um, Beelzebub there in Ekron, you need to stop them. <clears throat> in verse 4, this is what the Lord says. This is the message that he was sent to give. Um, oh, the question was, is there no God in Israel? Is that why you're sending someone down? So he's supposed to ask him that question, and then he's going to say, because you decided to send someone down there to Baal, then you're just not ever going to get out of your bed. You're going to die right where you are. That's God's prophecy to him. So, verse 5, the messengers come back to King Ahaziah, and they say, he says, why did you return so soon? They said, well, you know, we ran into this prophet, and he said that I, we needed to come back and tell you this, and and that is that, you know, is there no God in Israel? Why are you doing this? Why are you sending for a message? <clears throat> and, of course, then he's uh, he's very upset. He wants to find out who it is that did this, and they describe him, and he says, that's Elijah of Tishbe. He recognized him just by the description. And um, at this point, we enter into an interesting set of circumstances. Remember that the whole point of what Elijah and the other prophets were doing was to was to destroy Baal worship and restore the worship of the God of Israel. And the God who says, I am the Lord and there is no other, was to be central and not Baal. And so, um, in uh, let's go ahead and put the, this quote up there. A messenger had the authority of the one who sent them. Neither the captains that we're going to read about in a second here, nor King Ahaziah, respected the one who sent Elijah. Remember that. That's the critical element in what's being done here. Uh, they have no respect for the, for the messenger and, by extension, for the God who sent him. So verse 9, captain comes down with 50 soldiers. They see Elijah is up on top of this hill. Uh, they probably didn't know the story of Mount Carmel, or they might have been a little more careful. Um, <laughs> But here they go, up the hill, and they say, uh, Man of God, the king has commanded that you come down to us. And so this is, again, not a polite expression. This is something that's being done very abruptly, very harshly. Um, there may be a real implied threat, and you will come with us or else. Um, but Elijah replied to the strict captain, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you and your fifty men. And fire fell down and they were gone. Okay, now remember, this is about God. This isn't about Elijah specifically. Because Elijah had the authority of the one who sent him. He was sent with a message from God himself. 
And these people were trying to nullify that. It's very possible that Ahaziah was thinking, if I get the prophet of God here, I can coerce God into changing what he's saying. Or maybe I can just get rid of Elijah. So there's all kinds of things may have been happening in the background. But the reality in all of this is, this is Elijah, the prophet of God. And he has the authority of God to come and do this. And so he sends another 50 men. Um, and same thing, although in this case he's even more abrupt. Uh, this is the king demands that you come. And so there's a, there's a demand in the first one, a command. This one's a demand. And again, Elijah responds the same way. Again, remember, he's a man who is a messenger of God. And, and God is who he is representing. And they are doing this not against the messenger, but against God himself. And of course, God responds and fire from heaven comes down and destroys these 50 guys as well. And uh, so you would think the King Ahaziah might get this. He doesn't. Um, he sends a third captain with 50 men. And this third captain seems a little bit smarter than everybody else that's gone. Third captain with 50 men, but this time the captain went up on the hill, fell on his knees before Elijah, and he pleaded with him, O man of God, please spare my life and the lives of your 50 servants. See how the fire from heaven came down and destroyed the first two groups, but now please spare my life. This is a guy that's coming humbly. He's coming reverently. He understands that when we say this is a man of God, he represents God. He is speaking for God at this point. And so he's coming into that scenario saying, I'm going to give all the reverence and respect I should give God to God's prophet. And that's, that's essentially what he's doing, humbly, reverently. And at that point, verse 15, the angel of the Lord says, Elijah, go down. Go down with him. Don't be afraid. Go ahead. And... Um, Again, they get to the, get to the king, and you know, <laughs> Elijah just repeats the same message that God had sent earlier. Why did you send messengers down to Baal? Is it that there's no God in Israel? What makes you think there's no God in Israel? I'm here. I'm the only God in Israel. And they have that discussion, and he basically says, "You're going. You're not going to get up from this bed." Now, I came across this quote by McDonald. It said, It's pathetic that a king whose name means whom Yahweh sustains should turn to Baal for healing. Kind of a, one of those things that you wonder about. And so because you've rejected the true God of Israel, the penalty is death. You've had the opportunity and you've rejected it. Verse 17, So Ahaziah died just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. So what's our takeaway? And, and, and again, sometimes you read these things and, and it can be troubling until you start understanding the fact that this is, this was a battle between God himself and the forces of evil. And what he was saying to the nation was, I brought you here. I am the Lord and there is no other. And I am the one who took the Canaanites out. I am the one that gave you the power. I'm the one that gave you the law and all those other things so that you could live your lives in such a way that we could have a relationship together, the God of Israel and His people. Remember when they came out of Egypt and they got to Mount Sinai 
And there's all those things going on. And there's the, the covenant being presented. Exodus 24-7. Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it aloud to the people. Again, they responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. So they entered into that covenant saying, we have God's law. We have the sacrificial system. And we agree that this is good. God has given us then. And we want to worship him and follow him. Deuteronomy, again, Moses is going through those commands again that God had given in just the first couple. In verse 6, it says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt. Verse 7, you must not have any other God but me. Verse 8, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Verse 9, you must not bow down to them or worship them. Why? I'm a jealous God and I won't tolerate affection for other gods is essentially what he's saying. And so the reality that God as the creator and sustainer of all things has given us the privilege of relationship with him. What an incredible thing. We have that privilege that God has given us. And he's given it to us through faith in Jesus Christ. I love that verse in Romans 16. The gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Isn't that awesome? And again, God didn't say you have to do this huge pilgrimage, you have to do all these good works. He said, will you believe that I sent Jesus to die for you? The gospel is powerful because it changes lives for everyone who believes. And so if that's something that you can't point to a time in your life when you have actually believed, put your faith and trust in the fact that Jesus came and died for you, and I'd like you to do that this morning. It's a simple thing. Is put your heart focus on him and say, Lord, I believe you did this for me. We can rejoice in wonder as we remember that our God is the Lord who says, I am the Lord and there is no other part from me. There is no God. And that's the good news because Isaiah 57 says this, For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with with the oppressed or the humiliated. I live in a high and holy place and with the lowly of spirit, those who are crushed. I live in a high and holy place and with those who are oppressed, those who are uh, lowly in spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the oppressed. That's God. That's our God. And that's the message that Elijah was trying to communicate. There is one God, there is no other. And this God has offered relationship and it comes through the following and obeying Him and the things that He said. We just have to always constantly go back to there is only one. But this one God has said, I'm, I'm with you. Because if you're suffering and hurting and struggling, I'm with you. Because if you focus your faith and your trust in me, I'm with you. I just had went through all of the characters that we were looking and, and um, thought about just a lesson from each one that struck me as I was studying. The first one is Elijah. Uh, I love the fact that ha- he had nothing to fear because he was walking in obedience to God. Um, Ahab tried to kill him, wanted to get rid of him. There were others who I'm sure wanted to. 
didn't matter. He's following God. He's obeying God. There was absolutely nobody that could touch uh, Elijah. A hundred men come out, 50 at a time, to try to take him down. And it, he didn't have to lift a finger. You know? God, take care of it. Okay. Ahab. And I think one of the things I saw in Ahab, as I've been wandering through and studying Ahab for the last few weeks, Ahab shows us that you cannot manipulate or outmaneuver God. He thought he could escape God's judgment by changing clothes, putting on a disguise. Didn't work. If you want to put it crudely, there was an arrow with his name on it, and it didn't matter what he wore. And then you got Micaiah. This is a prophet we've never heard of before and never again after. But he goes into a situation with Ahab and 400 prophets and, and um, you know, they say, okay, tell us, tell, tell it like it is. And he stands courageously on God's word and says, you will die today. You are going to die. And of course, then he's sent to the dungeon and <clears throat> this is, this is the courage. As he's being taken, he says, yeah, if you come back, well then maybe, <laughs> maybe you could say God wasn't speaking to me, but that's not going to happen. You won't be back. And you've got Jehoshaphat. And I think the lesson <clears throat> that I, that I saw here, was the reminder that we must listen to God's word first, not second. Um, he decided to go to war with Ahab, and that decision was made before he sought confirmation and approval for that decision. And I had to stop and ask myself, how many times do I decide to do something and then ask God to bless it? Well, I'm going to go do this. Oh, by the way, God, would you mind blessing that, please? Now, I'm not trying to be uh, flippant and I'm not trying to be legalistic here. But I think sometimes in my own life I have to stop and say, okay, maybe I need to do what Jehoshaphat should have done. And then I say, okay, Lord, I need to make a decision about this. Would you please guide me? Show me. Lead me. Help me to know. Because I want to do what you want me to do in this situation. And to do that, rather than saying, Lord, I'm going to go do this, would you help me as I go do it? And uh, there's a subtle difference there, and it comes down to our hearts, I think. Those are just some lessons. But <clears throat> to me, the, the theme running through all this section of Elijah and Ahab was, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And our God is worthy of all our worship and all our praise. Our God is worthy of our obedience. And there is none besides him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. And thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the vivid, the vivid examples that we have of how you worked in the lives of men and women all through scripture. And how you tried to draw those who, who didn't come or didn't respond. And how you helped, encouraged, and protected those who were seeking to honor you in the way that they lived. Lord Jesus, I, I ask that you would just encourage each of us as we enter into this next week that we would seek to know you better and to live for you. 
We ask this in your name. Amen.